Oh God, we, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have shone your light into us. By your Holy Spirit, we pray now that you might take the light of your word, shine it into even the darkest places of our own lives. Uh, take your word, we pray. Encourage us, rebuke us when needed. Give us courage. Um, help us to see Jesus and the good news of what you have done for us in him more clearly today. Be with Mark as he speaks and opens your word up to us, we pray. Give us hearts that are humble uh, and ready to receive what you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me and to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness 
and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him his success in whatever he did. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Thanks, Steve. And it must have been a miserable three days for that poor baker, don't you reckon? 
Well, it's, 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 it's a, long, a long story there, but it's a ripping good yarn. And uh, what, what we want to do now, I think, is really try to, to look at some of the details in the way it's told and uh, what God has to say for us. Let's pray again. Our Father, we come before you. You know our hearts, you know our minds, you know the situation of our lives now. We pray that you would speak to each person here with something to take away to grow in our knowledge of you and our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When my grandfather became a Christian a few decades ago, it was the beginning of healing for some very damaged relationships. I was reminded of this just last week when I attended my grandmother's funeral. She was 98, and in many ways she had lived a very happy life for which she was very thankful to God. But there was one event that nearly undid her and the rest of the family, for that matter. My grandparents had married as childhood sweethearts. They had two boys, one of whom was my father. My grandfather was very successful in the business world, rising to be the managing director of a large automotive parts manufacturer in Sydney. They had a beautiful home in a comfortable part of town. Life was pretty good. Much of the automotive industry was based in Melbourne, however, and my grandfather traveled there regularly. There was networking and ambition. There were dinners and overnight stays. And there was the woman who called him Mr. Wonderful. The first that my grandmother heard of her was when he came home from Melbourne one time and said, I want a divorce. I don't love you anymore. I've met someone else. He disappeared for years, leaving behind deep scars and two very hurt and confused teenage boys. We heard last week that God brings good out of the evil of the faithless. Well, that happened for our family. Quite independently of each other, both my grandmother and my grandfather, he through hardships and she through some new friendships and a new marriage, both of my grandparents came to the Lord, as did both of their sons. God is indeed good. This week, we begin to consider the flip side of that coin, that God brings good out of the righteousness of the faithful. The faithfulness of the faithful. It turns out that Joseph is somewhat a hero of the faith. There is a great abundance to his life, despite what certainly looks like suffering and hardship. And I think these chapters we're looking at today, 39 and 40, are here to demonstrate the interplay between his blessing and his faithfulness. It's not a causal relationship, as we'll see, but nevertheless linked, blessing and faithfulness. And actually, it immediately makes me look forward in the Bible to Jesus Christ. We talked about that a bit last week. Jesus Christ is, of course, the epitome of blessing and the epitome of faithfulness. I mean, think about it. He, you know, he, although he lived a humble life and had a brutal death, he speaks of himself as the son of man, the one who would receive all of God's authority and power as predicted in Daniel 7. He would be supremely blessed and we see the beginning of that with his resurrection. 
And he and those around him heard a similar version of God's blessing on Jesus with their own ears, first at his baptism and then at the transfiguration on the mountaintop. God speaks out loud for everyone to hear, we, we believe. And, this, and he says, this is my son whom I love. All right? So not only is Jesus the epitome of blessing, he's also the epitome of faithfulness, both in the desert where he's hungry and isolated, where Satan tempts him day after day. And also in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he comes face to face with the choice of whether to do the will of God at the cross or not. And he's faithful through these temptations. And, you know, that combination of Jesus' faithfulness and his blessing are central to him being our saviour. We share in Christ's blessing. That's the whole point of the gospel, really. The inheritance that is due to him as God's son, it becomes ours too because we are counted brothers and sisters of his through adoption as God's children and so therefore also co-heirs with Christ, as we say. And we also share his righteousness we often hear that our sins are paid for at the cross. That's absolutely true. But the flip side is true too, that we receive his righteousness, his righteous deeds, his faultlessness at the cross. We are counted, this is extraordinary, as perfectly righteous in God's eyes because of Christ's righteousness, not actually because of our own best efforts. If you are in Christ, and that's what it means to become a Christian, if you are in Christ, God sees you as being just as righteous as Christ is. So blessing and righteousness are very important categories as we think about our salvation. And Joseph here in this passage is pointing us to these concepts. He too would be a blessed and righteous saviour. When you think about it, it's a good thing that he is righteous because there's going to come a time in, once he's exalted in Egypt and you know who's going to be standing in front of him? His betraying brothers and they'll have no idea who he is and his righteousness will be absolutely essential to his ability to save because revenge on them in his position would have been very easy. And it would have buried Jacob's bloodline. So we'll look at these two stories. We'll spend more time on chapter 39. Firstly, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Having been sold uh, by his brothers to some Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites are also descendants of Abraham, but, uh, but not descendants of the promise, because that promise went through Isaac. He's sold by these Ishmaelites. Joseph finds himself in Egypt. And this is a problem on some levels because part of God's promise to Abraham was that he would give them the land of Canaan. And that's the very land from which Joseph has now just been snatched away. It's as if your boss has promised you that one day you'll take over the organization, but then you get the sack. And the promise now looks quite unlikely. So we're going to look at that problem of him being away from the land of promise again in a couple of weeks. But on top of this, surely it must have been very hard for Joseph personally. It's a foreign country. 
with customs he didn't know and a language he didn't know. A contemporary analogy is tricky, but just imagine, you know, you're 17 or 18, your siblings hate you to bits, and somehow you find yourself abducted and smuggled to China, and, you know, you've, become, you've gone to become slave labour for a senior official in the communist government, right? Egypt, after all, was a nearby superpower. So if that was your situation, you know, would you trust that God was with you if you found yourself in, in that person's house, a slave to them? Well, the text makes it clear to us that God was with Joseph. Instead of rotting away in bitterness, Joseph embraces the opportunities. Potiphar, his master, can see, verse 3, that God is with Joseph, there's something different about him. And he can also see that Joseph is successful in all he does. And he attributes that rightly to the Lord. And verse 4, Potiphar, sorry, Joseph gets a promotion. He's still bonded to the household, but now he's Potiphar's right-hand man. He's in charge of everything in the house. And from that time on, verse 5, not only is Joseph successful, but also his success, his blessing is transferred to Potiphar. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had. And so Potiphar is, surprisingly enough, even more happy with Joseph. And this is a major reversal for our hero. It's not a perfect situation, though, because in the face of these good times, a big test for Joseph's integrity is just around the corner. Normally, normally when our integrity is tested, we assume that things will work out better if we resist temptation, don't we? Certainly my grandmother at the time would have thought things would have worked out better for her if my grandfather hadn't had that affair. That's how we think. But sometimes doing the right thing isn't so simple. Joseph, of course, is the bachelor of the year. He's well-built and handsome, according to verse 6, and he catches the eye of the temptress, Potiphar's wife, Come to bed with me, Mr. Wonderful. Now, the next couple of verses, I think, are fascinating. If you look at them carefully, it's striking um, to me that if you replace the words, but he refused, with the words, and he agreed, you could actually read the next two verses almost exactly the same, but they'd have a totally different meaning. See See what I'm saying? With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. That is, I can get away with it. He'll never know. He trusts me. No one is greater, verse 9, in this house than I am. That is, if anyone can do this or should do it, it should be me. I'm the top dog here. Maybe I'm entitled to do this. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. And that's not exactly fair. I want it all. So those sorts of arguments that others might use as excuses or as reasons justifying what, uh, the sin, Jesus, sorry, Joseph uses as statements of faithfulness. He says, Potiphar trusts me. Why would I betray him? The great honour he's given me comes with great responsibility. 
There's, there's literally only one thing I can't have. I have everything else. Why, why would I snatch this? It reminds me of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. You know, they've got the whole garden from which to eat, and there's just that one tree. But at the heart of Joseph's faithfulness to his master Potiphar is his faithfulness to God. End of verse 9. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It's a good question. When we are tempted to do the wrong thing, do we consider the affront that our thoughts and our words and actions might actually be to him? This, of course, is the definition of sin, acting against God or thinking and talking against God as well. Because sin is a relational concept. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, effectively a relationship breakdown between us and God. And so repentance from sin is about doing business with him, first and foremost. That's the most important thing if you think of yourself as, and understand yourself to be a sinner. It's praying to him, turning back to him. It actually matters a lot less what others think about our actions than what God thinks of our actions. It's striking but true. Now, I, I, we've got to get personal, obviously. I don't know what your own personal uh, struggle with temptation is. I know you've all got them. Perhaps in your case it is marital unfaithfulness. It's an issue in every age. An issue for young and old, an issue for rich and poor, an issue outside the church and inside the church. And the effects are always devastating, often on a far wider group of people than just the one cheated on, and often over a, a longer period of time. But even still, the most offended one is the creator. Perhaps there are other ways that your integrity is tested maybe workplace integrity stealing from your employer either maybe stealing time or stealing maybe cash i don't know maybe stealing government benefits do you struggle to tell the truth do you use your anger to get your way or maybe even you know people's fear of your anger you know so you don't actually have to get angry but you 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 try you sort of manipulate people is that your temptation do you wish you had other people's stuff? You know, you look at that great golf cart and you've got this, you know, rickety old thing you've got to drag along behind you. Or the boat or the, the car or the house or the family that other people have got. Do you, do you struggle to stand up for Jesus among family and friends? Do you tend to go soft when the topic gets difficult? You know, we would understand all of these things, wouldn't we? But they are really, really critical. And I think all of us need, honestly, to ask ourselves, what are the pressure points on us and on our integrity and faithfulness? These are about God's people being faithful to God. And we are going to be continually tempted to turn away from him. Did you notice verse 10 that well, she spoke to him day after day? nagging him come to bed with me come on day after day and he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her she persevered in her desire to have him just as the enemy will persevere with you 
And he, Joseph, continued not only to refuse, but he actually removed himself from her company. He wouldn't be around her. He wanted to be safe. What a great example of taking seriously the danger of sin. Now, some people will think that you're crazy if you, you, you sort of overdo it with you know, extra measures. I have female friends that I've, I've gained, had for, for years and decades and so on. And, uh, but any friends that I might have had before I was married, I, I, in, some ways, in some ways my attitude towards those friendships changes now. They, they kind of need to be Ali's friends too. Or if that person is married, then I make a, a particular effort of making friends with the person's husband. Or else I can't really connect with them anymore. I find. Now, is it really worth potentially losing friendships because of my marriage? Am I overdoing it? And I'm not suggesting any of my female friends are temptresses. Uh, I know, I just know how these things work. Adultery is usually not initiated by a brazen adulteress begging you to go to bed. Usually, it's a slow process of letting your guard down Combining, combined with the small instances of trust building with a person, maybe having things in common, sharing experiences. And, and I think these days they call those sort of things mini-cheating. And it doesn't take much in, for those acts of mini-cheating to turn into full-scale unfaithfulness over time. I've come to the point of just thinking that unfaithfulness of the mind and heart is still unfaithfulness. Like Joseph, we need to take some kinds of precautions to distance ourselves from the possibilities of sin because of our calling to be faithful to God. Well, we know what happens next. One day Joseph finds himself on his own without witnesses. And she tries again by grabbing his cloak and he tears himself away and she's left with his cloak in her hand. It's not the first time he's been stripped of a cloak. In this case... Running away is not cowardice. But she immediately shows her true colours. She's going to frame him for the sin that she's been begging to commit. She'd probably already prepared her story beforehand about being a victim. She immediately tells it to this other servants so that, you know, if the master checks later, they can back her up. Potiphar comes home, he's furious, and Joseph is thrown into prison. So in a way, this is spiritual warfare going on here. There's no specific mention of Joseph having the spirit, but it's, it's clearly a battle between light and darkness here, and it's almost as if the darkness has triumphed. We're often tempted to think that. You and your silly righteousness, Joseph, look where it's got you. You're, you're, you're thrown into prison. I mean, if you ever stand up for your integrity and lose a job or lose a friend or lose a whole lot of money, or whatever it is, maybe you'll feel the same thing. Ah, silly overdoing the righteousness. I don't know. But look at the text. God actually has other plans here. And notice how remarkable these verses at the end of chapter 39, verses 21 to 23, notice how remarkably similar they are to the verses at the beginning of the chapter. See, this chapter has... Uh, well, I should, should look at them first. God is determined to bless this guy... Right, And if Joseph had in mind that being a slave or being in prison meant that God wasn't looking after him, how wrong he'd be. But I don't think that is his attitude. 
It's just a wonderful passage where you have those statements of blessing at the beginning and the end, and in the middle is this temptation where he's proven faithful. Things work out for him when he's in prison, just as they did when he was enslaved. The prison warden puts Joseph in charge of all the prisoners and everything else that's done in the prison. Wow, the Lord gives Joseph success, and as a result, that blessing is transferred also to the prison warden. This blessed one is the one through whom others get blessed as well. We have to trust God for the long game, brothers and sisters. As I heard this week, you can't see the end from the beginning or even from the middle. And you know, there's no way in the world that Joseph could have imagined how God intended to bless him down the track. Brothers and sisters, we're called to be faithful and to trust him no matter what the circumstances look like now. Secondly, and much more briefly, the cupbearer and the baker. Two of Pharaoh's closest and most trusted officials are thrown into prison uh, with Joseph and they're under his care. The maker of Pharaoh's food and the tester of Pharaoh's food. He really had to trust these guys and maybe they've messed up somehow. Perhaps there was a dodgy meal or something. One morning Joseph sees that they're not themselves. He says, what's up? Everything okay, guys? Well, we've both had vivid dreams, they say, but there's no one here to interpret them. What are we going to do? Now, dreams were particularly significant for this time and culture. In Egypt, there were experts in dreams and there were a whole lot of interpretational guidelines as well. Dreams were seen to be a way to tap into the spiritual realm and perhaps even see the future. And in many non-Western cultures today, dreams still play a significant role in the spiritual landscape. You may be wondering, oh, what about my dreams? What do I make of my dreams? Do bear in mind that we now have the scriptures and Joseph didn't. And in some way, and, and what we need to remember is that for us, our primary reference point for the will of God is the scriptures. It doesn't mean he won't give us dreams and show us things, but for us, we need to test them by the scriptures. But this whole Joseph epic revolves around dreams, highly significant dreams, all given by God to nudge along the story. We had Joseph's dreams last week. Now it's Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's officials. Next week, it will be Pharaoh himself. But to Joseph is given not only the dreams, but also the highly coveted ability to interpret them. Of course, verse 8 Faithful Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. It's a bit bold if you think about it, but he's got this gift. Well, they both tell him their dreams and there are some common themes between them. Something big is going to happen in three days time and it's going to involve both their heads. Sure enough, this is fulfilled. There's a big birthday bash for, for uh, Pharaoh and the, the cup bearer is restored to his position. His head is lifted up. Sadly for the baker, it's not so pretty. His head is lifted off. Joseph had asked the cup bearer to remember him to Pharaoh when all goes well for you. But the last verse we read said, the cup bearer did not remember him. He forgot him. Makes you feel a bit sad, doesn't it? This totally innocent young guy, a person of integrity and courage, all the things that you, you, know, you value, burning up the best years of his life, 
in a prison, forgotten by all? Or is he? We're tempted to fall into thinking that we've been forgotten by God. You know, maybe we've been patiently waiting for our life to sort itself out. Maybe those big goals that you've had, just you haven't been able to kick them. Maybe there's just huge pressure on you in life. And maybe you pray and pray. Or maybe you forget to pray. And, and nothing changes. Joseph would be 30 years old before the cupbearer would remember him. And he would be exalted by Pharaoh. But right here, in these chapters that we've just read today, the foundations have been, led, have been laid. Sorry. Under temptation, he's been shown to be a person of the utmost faithfulness to God. And then in prison, God has revealed this gift for his interpreting dreams to Pharaoh's trusted cupbearer. The scene is set for what is to come. Joseph has no idea. How does that make you feel when you think about your own, your own walk? You have no idea what's ahead. It could be amazing. It will be, actually. What about God's plan for you? Has, hasn't he shown you it yet? Do you absolutely need to know every detail of it now? Let's be like Joseph, dwelling on the present blessings and faithfully waiting on God. Well, I said at the beginning that today we'd see that God brings good out of the righteousness of the faithful, the faithfulness of the faithful. We do need to be careful how we understand that, though. Joseph's faithfulness is an incredible inspiration to us and perhaps a rebuke to be people of integrity in whatever context we find ourselves. This is the essential faithfulness of God's people. Essential because we've got to do it, but also essential because this has got to describe us. This, this describes God's people. It's the essence of who we are. He wants us to be like this, to withstand temptation. However, I don't think this passage is saying that blessing comes as a result of being faithful to God. Well, not quite like that. God had planned to bless Joseph and bless the surrounding lands through Joseph long before any of this happened. The blessing came at the beginning of the chapter and then Joseph demonstrated his fidelity. See, blessing and faithfulness are actually the other way around from what I said before. Being faithful to God flows from being blessed by God. We get this, right? This is one of the key things people don't get about Christianity. Just think if you're a good person. But what, you know, that God will bless you. But what this is saying is that God actually blesses and then brings forth in us righteousness, faithfulness. Blessing is a gift. That's the whole point of it. It's not the reward that you can demand in fact, the big picture of the Bible that tells us that none of us is faithful to him of our own efforts. And in fact, God isn't trying to get you to prove your faithfulness to him at all. He knows our problem. We mess up. Earlier, I drew the parallel between Joseph and Jesus. It's absolutely crucial to understanding this whole passage 
Jesus, Jesus is the epitome of faithfulness and the epitome of the blessed one. Today, I hope you're inspired by Joseph's faithfulness, but ultimately, Joseph points us to Jesus. Don't misunderstand the significance of Jesus for your life. Sure, he's an example of faithfulness too, an inspiration, but that's only part of the picture. This is the important bit. We receive Jesus' faithfulness. That's the important thing. We receive Jesus' faithfulness. It comes to us as a gift. That is actually our blessing. You get to put on the robe of Jesus' righteousness. You'll see that in Isaiah 61 and other places. You are counted by God as being faithful, just as faithful as Jesus was, not by your own good works, but by your faith in Jesus. What a great gospel. What we simply do is turn away from our sins, to reject it and put our trust in Jesus. And that's all we need to do. We hold out our hand for the gift that he's waiting there already to give us. Perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness is really worth having because without it you cannot be with God. This is not some sort of moralistic ideal. This is about our goal. This is about where we're going. This is about what our blessing ultimately will look like. It's eternity in the presence of God as righteous ones with the great righteous one. We need this righteousness. And it was a real act in human history that on the cross that made this all happen. It was always God's plan to bless us and it would be through the faithfulness, not of us fallen ones, but through the faithfulness of the faithful one. Well, to finish, it was sad going to my grandmother's funeral a week ago, but it was also an extraordinary celebration. As I'm sure you'll know if you've been to the funeral of believers, she knew she was going to be seeing Jesus. I was a little jealous in some ways. I thought, she's with him now. And she knew that heaven would be nothing other than abundant blessing. Not because of her outstanding faithfulness, but because of his. So my question is to you, have you taken hold of God's gift of blessing with both hands and then and, and live with that as your orienting primary thing in life? Have you? Why not pray with me now? Our Father, we thank you for this gift, your blessing. And we thank, you, we thank you for, in particular, for the righteousness of Jesus that we uh, receive simply by faith. Father, help, this, help us to get this truth deeply into our heads and into our hearts and to pour out through our mouths, in our speech and through our song as we praise you. Our Lord God, we, of course, will face uh, testing and trouble in this life. And we pray that you would give us the integrity and faithfulness of Joseph. And so, Lord, we entrust our lives to you. And we pray that you would work in us to bring greater and greater good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.